dance before the Lord. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted-in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Vaikra, he called. The address is Vaikra, Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 5, verse 26, or in your English Bibles, it runs through chapter 6, verse 7. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. The written commentary was updated on February 28th of 2008. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, this is the beginning of the book of Vaikra. Um, it's also known as the book of Leviticus. And the English title, Leviticus, comes from the fact that the book is primarily written about the many functions within the Levitical priesthood. Thus, Leviticus um, is related to Levi in Levitical cult, or the the, the priest of uh, the the uh, tribe of Levi and the uh, priests found therein. Our Hebrew Hebrew title, however, comes from the ancient practice of naming a book or portion after one of the opening few words, like we've seen in just about every other Torah portion that we've studied. The Stone Edition Tanakh has this to say about the Book of of uh, Vaikra. Let me make a quote there. Um, Quote, in the lexicon of the Talmudic sages, the book of Leviticus is called Torah's Kohenim, or the Torah of the Kohenim, or priests, because most of the book deals with the laws of the temple service and other laws relating to the priests and their responsibilities. The opening chapters of the book, um, Stone Edition goes on to say, uh, relate to, I'm sorry, the opening chapters of the book deal exclusively with animal korbanos, or um, sacrifices. And they go on to say that this is a word that is commonly translated as either sacrifices or offerings. But the truth is that the English language does not have a word that accurately expresses the concept of a korban. The word sacrifice implies that the person bringing it, uh, that implies that the person bringing it is expected to derive himself of something valuable. Um, but God finds no joy 
in his children's anguish or anguish or uh, deprivation. Offering, uh, the word rendered from uh, korban, is more positive and closer to the mark. Indeed, we use it in our translation, they go on to say. But it, too, falls short of the Hebrew korban. Does God require our gifts to appease him or assuage him? Quote, if you have acted righteously, what have you given him? End quote. That's taken from Job chapter 35, verse 7. They go on to conclude, God does not become enriched by man's largesse. Uh, that's taken from the Stone Edition Tanakh Art Scroll Series, Misora Publications, page 243. Indeed, as we go on to study... Um, the sacrifices or the offerings, and I'm going to use the words interchangeably. Sometimes, for the sake of emphasis, emphasis, I'll use sacrifice, and other times I'll switch over to offering. But indeed, much of the concept of korbanot, sacrifices, is foreign to our 21st century ears. Um, could it be because there's no temple? Well, that could be one of the reasons. But as believers in Messiah Yeshua, we have come full circle and we understand that the Levitical priesthood has been superseded by his own effectual bloody sacrifice made on the heavenly altar. In other words, in God's um, timing of things, he, if you remember now, now listen carefully, he first introduced the Bible readers to the Melchizedek priesthood, way back in Genesis. Melchizedek in Hebrew. And after learning of Melchizedek, we then get introduced to the um, Levitical priesthood in the book of Leviticus where we're reading about. And then we learn of the Messianic priesthood as uh, perhaps, say, detailed in the book of Hebrews most um, most uh, uh, effectively. And so really what we're talking about is that Yeshua has brought us full circle from the Melchizedek priesthood through the Levitical priesthood and back to as it were, the Malkitzetic priesthood. So a thorough study of the book of Hebrews, which is called Messianic Jews in David Stern's version, um, in my opinion, it would do well to help the average reader understand the concepts that the book of Aikra is ultimately pointing to. I know it can get um, confusing at times, but we're going to do our best not to be confused. In fact, this first commentary to uh, to Leviticus Parashat Vaikra, for the sake of establishing a foundation on the uh, the sacrificial system. It's going to be lengthy. In fact, the written commentary is, what, 14 pages printed out from the internet version. And for that reason, the audio is probably going to be broken up into three separate files of about 30 minutes each. So just get ready for a long read or a long listen either way, all right? For those of you who are new readers, it's imperative uh, that you understand what I've previously stated in a former parasha concerning sacrifices and our relationship to Yeshua as believers. So, um, for the new readers, or even just for the um, those of you who are veterans, here's a brief recap. I say brief, but as you listen, it's not going to be brief. Here's a brief recap for the people who are just joining our, our uh, study group. Okay, you ready? I took most of these notes from Parashat Vayichel, uh, which was, what, about three or four parashot ago. It's uh, the, the one of the second to the last parashot in um, the book of uh, Exodus. Quote, As I stated in a previous parasha, God's system of animal sacrifices with their ability to cleanse or wash the flesh was never intended to be a permanent one. Now, we already know that using, again, 21st century uh, Christian hindsight looking backwards towards the temple. And we know that uh, if it were to be permanent, at least 
um, ongoing without any break in the succession, then we would not have seen the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But God was teaching us a very valuable principle through the sacrifice of Yeshua, and that's what we're going to study. Conversely, the animal sacrifices that we're going to study about in, Levit- in Leviticus here were not intended to be a temporary fix either. Now, I use that term, temporary fix, because later on I'm going to talk about how that in, in Christian circles today, it's vogue to talk about the sacrifices as if they brought about some type of a temporary salvation for the individuals until Yeshua came. And I don't believe that's quite accurate either, so we're going to discuss that. In fact, um, the etymological background of the word Torah, etymology deals with the study of words and their origins and how they're used. The etymological background of of this word Torah, the root word being an archery term meaning to direct towards the goal. Um, The root word also suggests that the fullest measure of Hashem's atonement, and the Hebrew word for atonement, uh, the root word is kafar, and it's usually translated to atone, or to cover over, or to make reconciliation, to pacify, to propitiate. In fact, according to Brian, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, uh, it also means to purge. Uh, the BDB uh, give me those definitions there. Um, and anyway, um, the fullest measure of Hashem's atonement was not found in the earthly copies, but rather in the heavenly originals. Now again, we know this using Christian uh, uh, theology or, or the Christian studies that we've undertaken. But um, there's some some uh, aspects to the Christian studies that seem to leave gaps in our studies on the sacrifices. And that's what I aim to shore up here in this opening uh, section to my commentary. Yet, um, even though these, uh, these sacrifices um, did not provide... Um, the fullest measure of Hashem's atonement. Yet during the time period of the Tanakh, we must remind ourselves, the animal sacrifices were authentically God's system. They were not; it was not a man-made system. Uh, for instance, if we were to compare the sacrifices to, say, much of the prayers that are um, central in today's rabbinic Judaism, many of the prayers although they're um, linked directly to scriptural passages, we don't find any warrant, as it were, to teach our followers that prayer replaces sacrifice. In the time period of the Tanakh, there was no such uh, notion being taught. Prayer did not replace sacrifice. Rather, prayer accompanied sacrifice, or I should say uh, the heart, which had an attitude of prayer, um, accompanied the sacrifices, as as indeed they should have um, if they were continued. But um, the animal sacrifices, what I'm simply trying to say, is were authentically God's system. They weren't man's system uh, or any other, um, uh, any other invention. In other words, if you were a citizen of this community living back in the time period of the Tanakh, and you were a citizen of this community of former slaves, remember they came out of Egypt, and you wanted to operate within a covenant relationship with its Savior, of course, we're talking about God, um, then you had no choice but to participate in the animal sacrifice, uh, the sacrificial system when approaching the Holy Tabernacle or later on the Holy Temple where God concentrated His glory. If you wanted to approach God, you must participate in the sacrificial system. There was no room for circumvention. You could not simply march up to the holy place and demand to have an audience with God without bringing some sort of sacrifice. And to be sure, even if you brought a sacrifice, you still could not go into the holy place or, uh, to be sure, you could never get into the Holy of Holies. So, um, many students of today, looking backwards, might 
question. Why would Hashem require exclusivity? It's a good question, and I'm not going to imagine that I have all the answers, but I like to believe that because in his established order of things, the Torah teaches us that only the blood could make atonement for their lives. And you can read Leviticus 17.11, a verse that we're going to study in upcoming uh, Parashot. Tim Haig makes a case for the meaning of the word kafar um, as, quote, wipe off or smear on, end quote, uh, in this um, excerpt from a short paper that is available from his site uh, at torresource.com as of the 20th when I updated this commentary. So let me lift that quote and um, center our study there for a moment. Quote, here's Tim Haig. The root KPR, um, that's the English rendering of the Hebrew letters, the root KPR is attested in the Akkadian base stem, kaparu, meaning, quote, wipe off or smear on, end quote. This is classified with kaparu too, uh, rendered as, quote, pour bitumen over, end quote, and koper too, which is rendered, quote, pitch tar and pitch or tar or bitumen, end quote. And also with the so-called D-stem, kupuru, which is rendered, quote, to wipe off, clean, rub, ritually purify, end quote. Heg goes on to say, quote, the idea that kafar has, uh, has its base meaning to cover was strengthened by the fact that the same root is used one time in the Tanakh to mean, quote, to cover with pitch, end quote. And that's uh, referenced from Genesis 6, verse 14. Uh, Heg goes on to say, in this case, the verb appears in the call stem. And uh, those of you who know anything about Hebrew know that uh, verbal stems in the Hebrew language uh, operate in seven different stems, uh, seven different um, uh, binyanim, binyanim um, uh, conjugations is what we mean. And so we have the call as being the base stem or the lowest stem that we can find. However, every other place in of the verb um, and he's still talking about kafar. Every other place the verb is found in the Tanakh, it is in either the pi'el, the pu'al, the heat pi'el, or the rare neat pi'el. And he's just mentioning some of the other stems that the verb conjugates um, into, from the call stem, which is the simple base root. Uh, the, the prime root usually is how um, uh, Strong's Concordance will list it, prime, P-R-I-M dot root. Um, a primitive root or the lowest root, and then it moves from there and builds into like it's 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 for those of you who don't understand Hebrew, it's akin to saying the the word the English word do can get conjugated into the into the English word done or doing or or um, has done or will do, and in those different forms we understand that the root word is do, and from the root word do we branch out into other variations of the word do, which is, of course, the variation doing, done, has done, and it changes the tenses and, and intensity and so on. That's all we're saying in the uh, Hebrew here. Let's go back to Haig. Averbeck notes that, quote, from a methodolo uh, methodological point of view, uh, linguistically, the same root in a different stem is a different word, end quote. And um, Averbeck's uh, note within Haig's quote was lifted from Nidot um, 2, reference 692 through 93. Uh, Haig goes on to quote, say, as such, the call should not necessarily be taken to indicate the meaning for the piel and other stems. Thus, Haig concludes, the suggestion that kafar has 
as its base meaning, quote, to cover, end quote, has been discarded by many current scholars, including evangelical scholars, end quote. All right, and the whole Hague quote, uh, you, the reader, can go back and read his entire article, is lifted from uh, Tim Hague, The Meaning of Kafar at TorahResource.com, and that's um, right there on his front page. You'll see uh, the the name of the article, which is called The Meaning of Kafar. Um, I lifted that from page one of that study. Now, let's get another viewpoint in, in um, comparison to Hague's or in um, contrast. Presenting the notion that the blood of the animals did not so much cleanse the worshiper as it cleansed the holy sanctum, we have a quote now from Tikvat David, Hope of David, um, from their website, and they write in an article entitled, quote, Understanding the Sacrifices of Israel Past and Future, end quote. Um, here's what they have to say. Quote, Most importantly, burnt purification and reparation offerings were made to cleanse the sanctuary of the people's sin and impurity. The sins and ritual impurities of the people were like pollution that stuck to the tabernacle or the temple. God's holy presence would withdraw from the land, which was also holy, if the people did not constantly cleanse to allow his presence near. This is the theology of Leviticus 15.31, which reads, quote, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst, end quote. Uh, Tikvat David goes on to say, This is also behind Numbers chapter 5 verse 3 which they quote you shall put out both male and female putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell in quote they also reference numbers chapter 19 verses 13 and 20 as well as Ezekiel 5:11 and Ezekiel 23:38 they conclude thus the levitical sacrifices were not for obtaining personal forgiveness or for making the worshiper clean in this sense, they were not like the cross of Yeshua, which does bring forgiveness to the worshiper and makes him or her clean. They were to clean the sanctuary of the people's sins and impurities so God's presence could dwell in a clean place, end quote. So, they draw an interesting um, comparison uh, or similarity between Tim Haig's um, article there. In fact, we're going to go back to Tim Haig's article here in a minute. Um, but keep in mind that they're they're already at this point we're seeing that um, the sacrifices were also necessary for God's temple uh, as when compared to the people bringing sacrifices. In fact, for the most part, when I was growing up in Baptist schools, I was always taught that the sacrifices focused primarily on the people, the worshipers, and they really didn't have any bearing on God's sancta at all, God's temple or tabernacle. And yet, as I've done my later studies as a rabbi, a messianic rabbi, um, I'm understanding now that the sacrifices do bear relevance to God's tabernacle. In fact, now let's go to Hague and watch how he seems to make reference to such cleansing of the tabernacle or temple as well. I'm sorry, you know, before I read Hague's quote, let me tell you that the uh, Hope of David article was taken from www.hopeofdavid.com, and it's the article labeled article number one. Now let's go look at Hag again. Using um, the same article that Hag wrote at his website, The Meaning of Kafar, um, this time from page two, he writes, quote, If we accept Averbeck's viewpoint that a primary meaning of kipir, which is the piel stem of kafar, um, 
if we accept that the primary meaning of keeper is to be found in those places where the verb has a clear direct object, then its base meaning is to be found in connection with Yom Kippur for the verb which with direct object occurs only in Leviticus 16 and the comparable passages in Ezekiel 43 and 45. If this is the case, Tim Haig goes on to say, then the base meaning is, quote, to wipe away, end quote. For in these contexts, kafar has a direct effect on sancta. It wipes sancta clean, meaning it restores the status of sanctum to that which had been defiled. And that sounds very similar to what um, Tikvat David was explaining above. Tim Haig goes on to conclude, in this way, the call meaning of the verb to cover with pitch, end quote, is connected to the meaning of the P.A.L., quote, to wipe with blood, end quote. Now, after listening to these, just these two, of course I've done more studies than this, but I only quoted these two for our commentary here today, I can agree as a writer with both aspects of this word kafar as cover, and as wipe clean. In other words, I see it affecting both the worshiper as well as the sancta. Um, it affects the worshiper as well as the sanctuary. For indeed, as the blood of the animals pointed toward the ultimate sacrifice of Yeshua, we, the cleansed worshiper, can now approach the Holy of Holies in heaven, as it were, without the fear of contaminating God's throne. That's really I, as I, how I understand the the lesson being taught uh, by the um, commentaries that we just uh, referenced there. Whether or not, however, we could theoretically approach the earthly mercy seat as believers is altogether another issue. I've heard this brought up in Midrashic circles. In fact, I've brought it up in my own Midrashim. Um, whether or not, since we are now believers in Yeshua, if the temple were standing today, could we boldly walk right into the holy place and then, and then, as it were, into the Holy of Holies and perhaps gaze on the um, Aron Kodesh, the Holy uh, Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the question is brought up kind of, of uh, hypothetically. If we believe in Jesus, does that permit us to walk right up to and bypass the priestly system if the priests were here? Or to be more closer to be closer to um, maybe an application of my hypothetical situation. In the time period of the first century when the um, temple was standing before it was destroyed, post-resurrection we had believers in Yeshua, Peter, James, John, Paul, uh, people who believed in Yeshua, um, maybe not James, uh, maybe not John, I guess he was killed <laughs> in Yeshua's day, but um, let's just pick on Paul. Paul, were, Paul had access to the temple in his day. Are we to suggest that Paul was able, because he believed in Yeshua, or permitted to walk right up into the holy place and then indeed into the Holy of Holies without being stopped or apprehended by one of the priests that worked there? I believe that the answer is no. Even though he believed in Yeshua, he was not permitted to walk right up there because of God's order, uh, orders given to the priestly case to not allow anyone to come in there. Um, suffice it to say, and, and I can't be dogmatic, I mean, it is an interesting question. Maybe those of you listening to my commentaries who hold midrushes um, using my commentary material, maybe you can uh, bring that discussion up to the, uh, to the rabbi who's officiating. Uh, suffice it to say that with the above supplied information, we today can now better understand that our God was teaching each and every participant an important aspect of his established spiritual laws. Let's move on. This next section in my commentary is entitled Washing and Wiping the Sins Away. 
The animal sacrifices, as we're learning, conveyed both a temporal and an eternal message to the participants. And that's sometimes a point of of um, contention between those doing studies of the sacrificial system. You'll have proponents of the temporal, and you'll have proponents of the eternal. And really what we're finding that is many times the Torah gives us not an either-or um, view, but gives us a both-and view of many things. And so that's what we're learning about the sacrifices as well. The blood of bulls um, and goats is the shadow, and Yeshua is the type. However, before we become so quick to look down um, on the temporal aspect or the temporal shadows, let's look at look at what the sacrificial system of those days could accomplish. Let's just give an example so that we can wrap our mind around what it might look like for someone to bring an offering of those days. And so we're going to single out Melech David, King David. In Psalm chapter uh, Psalms chapter 32 and 51, we see the heart of a man who genuinely experienced the forgiveness of Hashem. And if you read Psalm 32 as well as Psalm 51, you'll see that I'm, um, I'm right there in, in describing the heart of David. In fact, in Psalm 32, 32 verse 1, um, David stated that, that um, the man whose sin is covered is blessed. And the Hebrew word there for covered is not kafar. It's rather the Hebrew word kasah. It's a different word, a different Hebrew word. And it literally means to cover or conceal. Um, in verse 5 of the same chapter 32, David clearly states that his acknowledgement of his sin brought about true forgiveness from Hashem. See how that works there? Because of unmerited favor. In other words, can you say grace? Yes. Because of grace, this man, David, could rejoice in the mercies of Hashem. Read verses 10 and 11, and you'll get my point. Psalm 51, as well, was written after David had committed the gross sin with Bathsheba, the mother of Melech Shlomo, in, uh, King Solomon. And in this passage, we again see a man who, knowing the true goal of the Torah, in other words, David was a Messianic Jew, knowing the true goal of the Torah, which is salvation of his eternal soul through the promised one to come, this man sought the genuine forgiveness of his maker. He did not see, as it were, the goal being reached through the temporal blood of the mortal sacrifice. Verses 16 through 19 of Psalm 51 explain to we readers that a heart given to genuine trusting faithfulness, a heart given to faith, the very same heart required of us today. In other words, if we were to draw a comparison between David and today, David was required to have faith, we are required to have faith. Um, this same heart of faith is what rendered the sacrifices of the Tanakh effective. And that's what I'm trying to teach us today. Simply performing the rituals, the bringing the sacrifices, going through the motions perfunctorily, did not please our heavenly Abba. Read verses 16 and 17. Rather, it was a heart broken in genuine submission to the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God. And this is what moved Hashem to forgive the participant. This same heart, I must mention again, is what gave the sacrifices validity. Read verse 19 of Psalm 51. That is the important lesson that I want for us to take home with us today. The sacrifices in and of themselves did not do the work. 
God has always required faith. That's why the book of Hebrews says, quote, in chapter 11, that without faith it is impossible to please God. That statement is true both in David's day as much as it's true for us today. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We have to remind ourselves of that from time to time. I guess you could ask yourself this question. Did David as of yet know the name uh, of his future descendant, Yeshua, when he was bringing the sacrifices? Um, We have no evidence to support that he explicitly knew the name Yeshua. What he did know, however, and we can be sure of this, is that through Moshe, the Torah promised that one day a prophet, that's capital P, a prophet would arise and that the people were to obey him. You can read Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. David was surely familiar with this passage. What David also had was a glimpse of the intended function and nature of the Torah, which is the goal. Um, He did have a glimpse in that these antitypes pointed towards the day when the corporate sins of all Israel would be forgiven. David surely had that concept down into his heart. And of course, we're talking about the feature that's mentioned in Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, chapter 31-34, where it's mentioned that never again the sins of Israel would be brought to Hashem's mind. In other words, Hashem promises in that passage passage that he would forgive their sins and he would remember them no more let's quote the passage from the kjv quote for i will forgive their iniquity and i will remember their sin no more that's a great passage to remember as we study the sacrifices and just in case you've forgotten this feature of forgiving their sins and not remembering them anymore this is quote a new testament feature again this is for people who have a problem with understanding that grace was offered in the period of the Tanakh. Those um, proponents of the dispensational theology who believe that everything started brand new in the New in the New Testament, and that the New Testament supersedes the Old. We cannot find any warrant for that if we look at this verse. Um, so, uh, read Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, and you'll see that it's quoting the Jeremiah passage. In fact, according to, since I've got Hebrews in my mind here, according to the book of Hebrews, the sacrifices of David's day could cleanse the flesh. Oh yes, they could, but they could not cleanse the conscience. That is to say, I understand Hebrews to be teaching me as I read it, that only the eternal blood of a sinless sacrifice can regenerate the mind of an individual. By comparison, the blood of bulls and goats focused on the external. So, let's turn to Hebrews so that we can draw proper um, comparison and or contrast between these two features of blood. Quote, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more, which is a call of a Comer argument, by the way, I'll explain that in a moment, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? End quote. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, rendered from the KJV. Now let's go back and um, exegete that verse for a split second, that passage. First of all, the writer of Hebrews is using rabbinic logic, which has been identified today as Kal Vahomer. Kal Vahomer is one of uh, the seven rules of Hillel, um, of which the writer of Hebrews would have been familiar, because Hillel lived before the time period when Hebrews was written. Kal Vahomer is simply this. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, or from the greater to the lesser. And it works somewhat algebraically like this. 
if A is greater than B and B is greater than C, how much more is A greater than C? Using that algebraic equation for the logic principle behind Kol Vachomer, the writer of Hebrews is trying to say that if the blood of bulls and goats cleanses the flesh, how much more does the blood of Yeshua cleanse the conscience? It's a good and better argument. It's not a bad versus good argument. In fact, the writer of Hebrews uses Kol Vachomer um, logic throughout his entire book. And the logic goes good to better, not bad to good, like the Christian church is taught for so often. The Christian church is fond of teaching that the book of Hebrews is trying to teach its readers that the old system is bad and that the new system is good. Old system being Tanakh, sacrifices, etc., priests, and new system being Yeshua and his sacrifice. But that's, not, that's an incorrect rendering or an incorrect view of the book of Hebrews. Rather, and perhaps one of these days we'll do a study on the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand that the um, the blood of the bulls and goats and the ashes of the red heifer um, cleans the flesh, which is a good thing. It's a good thing, people. It's not a bad thing that the blood of the animals brought about the wiping away of the stain of sin uh, for the worshiper as well as for the sancta. It's a good thing. But how much more, how much more effective or how... Uh, it's better if we could also have a cleansed conscience along with a cleansed flesh. Um, I imagine that the worshiper of that day would probably make the connection sooner or later as he brought the animal sacrifices repeatedly, thinking to himself, gosh, I wish there was a way that I could remove the stain of sin from my mind as well. And that's where Yeshua's sacrifice comes in. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews and finish our um, point here. Moreover, the writer of Hebrews makes this point explicit. In case you didn't catch it the first passage, he makes it explicit in this next quote taken from the next chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that uh, passage. Quote, The law is, and this is from the New International Version this time, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, um, they would they not have stopped bringing, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. End quote. Now, that's a very familiar passage. Um, but it's a passage that bears, that, that, that must be explained. Based on what we're studying, we understand that the writer, again, of Hebrews, is drawing a comparison for his listeners to understand the reality of the, of the sacrifices and their, their comparison or their, their, their um, what should I say, their contrast to the sacrifice of Yeshua. The sacrifices of those days was good, but the sacrifice of Yeshua is better because the sacrifice of Yeshua cleanses the inner, if I could say, the, the, the heart and the mind of the individual, whereas the sacrifice, the, the blood of the animals, could only cleanse the outer part of the individual, washing the flesh or wiping away the stain of sin as it um, polluted the sanctuary. So, what I'm, I'm, I'm dr bringing all of this out for two very important reasons. One reason is because, again, modern Christian theology has engineered 
a, um, a, a teaching that states that the blood of the bulls and goats was not effective. It did not offer any type of sacrifice or forgiveness, and that's not true. The sacrifices worked, but they worked to cleanse the outer. That's what they were designed to do, and therefore they did their job. They didn't just do it uh, automatically. They still required faith on the part of the participant. And that's one part, uh, one of the reasons why I'm bringing this study to our mind. But the other reason is because it's often taught that the Old Testament saints were saved by bringing the sacrifices. In other words, we either render the sacrifices completely useless in our Christian circles, saying that they, they offered no forgiveness, or we go the reverse and say that they offered complete forgiveness uh, so as to say that they offered um, salvation. And that's incorrect as well. We can't fall for either ditch. We have to find the comfortable middle where it's a little bit of, of both and. The Old Testament saints were not saved by a different system than the one in which we today rely on. In fact, if they were, then this would suggest that they, the sacrifices, were, uh, or I'm sorry, they, uh, yeah, the sacrifices were really a separate way unto righteousness. In other words, it would suggest that there were two ways to be saved, two ways, uh, two separate ways unto righteousness, which is a theory that we know cannot be true. Um, Tim Haig's conclusion is fitting for our study so that we can understand um, the point that I'm trying to make here. So let's quote Haig. Uh, again, from the same commentary available at his website, The Meaning of Kafar, this time from page 5, quote, The older idea that atonement was only a temporary fix for sins um, for those who lived in the time before the coming of our Messiah, must be abandoned. The idea of atonement, he goes on to conclude, as portrayed in the scriptures, encompasses both a temporal aspect as well as an eternal one. End quote. So, again, we have to tell ourselves, it's not the ditch, as we look at the sacrifices and the animals and the blood, and we studied Leviticus, it's not the blood of the animals that offered complete forgiveness tantamount to salvation. And at the same time, it's not the ditch on the other side of the road that teaches that the animals were completely useless. To be sure, Yeshua himself stated emphatically that he was the way and that he was the truth and the life, if you'll remember, and that no man can come unto the Father except through him. So based on that, we can tell ourselves the sacrifices performed with a genuine heart of repentance afforded real life forgiveness, but only to the purification of the flesh. However, the mortal blood of the animals in and of themselves and by themselves could not even take away sin. Only the eternal blood of the perfect sacrifice, to which the animals pointed, of course, Yeshua, could purify both flesh and soul. That's what we need to remind ourselves. Thus, in our conclusion to part A of this commentary, the blood of the animals washed or wiped clean the holy place where God manifestly dwelt. The objective faith of the individual still remained dependent upon God's promised word to come, namely Yeshua himself. Yet his obedience, the obedience of the individual of that day, was demonstrated by adherence to explicit Torah commands where sacrifices were concerned. Yes, if he wanted to walk obediently into God's ways, he had to participate in the sacrificial system. What is more, as I close part A, the salvation of the eternal soul of an individual was always dependent 
upon a circumcised heart exactly as it is today. And that concludes part A of our study. Continue to listen to part B and then eventually part C uh, as we continue with our study on Parashat Vaikra.